Okay, now for our message today to be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele is entitled Victory. Not me, is it? On Tuesday, May 8, 1945, newspapers around the world declared that World War II, at least in Europe, was over. The war that Winston Churchill called the most preventable war in history was finally drawing to a close. And I can only imagine what that must have been like. What was that like to be there, alive at that time, reading these newspaper headlines? At long last, the war was closing. The war was finishing. I'm curious, was anybody alive? Do we have any Folks that are willing to admit their age was alive during that time. Do you remember the newspapers? No, because you were wee youngsters, right? And that's something interesting, isn't it? Because it is slowly shifting out of the living memory of those that experienced that. We are losing, in many ways, that generation. But it must have been almost hard to believe that this great, all-consuming world war was finally finishing. The war that started on the 1st of September, 1939, with the invasion of Poland was finally coming to an end. And it would, of course, be a few more months before the Japanese forces would surrender on September 2nd, 1945 exactly six years to the day. And that's an interesting number too, isn't it? Uh, any of us that study biblical numerology and the idea that numbers have meanings prophetically and otherwise, six is used a lot for, for man, for man's rule. A 6,000 year period we think about of man's rule on the earth. And World War II was about six, uh, six years representing, perhaps, in some way, some kind of biblical timeline. But regardless of this fact, what was not in dispute was the cost of this ruinous war. According to wikipedia.com, the most preventable war in history cost in the region of 70 to 85 million lives. Million lives. Think about that unbelievable cost. It was a full 4% of the global population at the time. The financial cost, even just to the United States alone, was over $4 trillion just for World War II. And that's just the United States. The cost to Great Britain was probably about the same. And of course, the cost to Britain was even bigger than that because it brought about the end of its global power and the end, uh, starting of the end 
of the British Empire. A whole new order of things came about out of the cinders of World War II. And of course, we know that as the Cold War. But even all the decades that came after World War II and the Cold War and all the technology and all the, the missile development and all the other wars embedded within that has not exceeded the cost of World War II. But none of that can take away what much of, must have been at the time just an incredible, incredible day. Not yet eclipsed in the 80 plus years since. What Winston Churchill dared to suggest before the Battle of Britain in those dark days of 1940, when only England stood against the German might, he said, if we can stand up to him, then all of Europe can breathe free. But if we fail, the whole world, including the United States, will descend into the abyss of a new dark age. It must have seemed impossible, mustn't it? In those days, in 1940, it must have seemed impossible that there would come a day when that threat would be removed, when the world could breathe free. When he took over as prime minister in May of 1940, Churchill was asked, what is your aim? He answered in one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. He had a way with words, didn't he? And those words are very applicable for us, too. And so why do I bring up this great conflict and the most costly war in, in quite possibly in human history? Well, it's because I feel that we may just be at the start of a chain of events that will lead to a series of conflicts and wars that will be far costlier. We know that it's out there. We know that there are conflicts prophesied that are out ahead of us. And just maybe, we might be on the verge of the times that lead up to that. I may be wrong, but it seems to me that the rapid cultural changes that we are experiencing, along with the political changes and the economic changes that are coming on this world and the in uncertainty in so many different political regions are all coming together and the outcome is far from certain. It's murky at best. But I think there are two factors that I can make this statement on. I'm sure there are more, but my, for my purposes today, I want to take a look at two strong factors that might give us a clue as to where we really are in time. Remember, Jesus admonished us, didn't he, when he was, when he was talking to the Sadducees and the, the Pharisees, and he was really rebuking them. But it's a reminder to us. He said in Matthew 16, uh, verse 2, he said to them, when it is evening, you say, uh, when it is evening, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the, the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, 
You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Now, I don't think we're hypocrites, not at all. But Jesus is reminding us, isn't he, to look at the signs of the times. To look at it and not hide our eyes, not look away, but to genuinely, with boldness and faith, look at the signs that are around us and ask ourselves, what is the time? What is the time as it relates to prophecy? So as we look at this world, the conditions around us, it's critical for us to remember what Jesus told us. Sometimes really how it looks is really how it is, isn't it? So the first factor that I want to look at is actually found all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Now, there's a lot going on in this passage, and we're probably going to skip around a little bit. But there's a central point in this passage that I want to draw our attention to, because it's easy to overlook. It's one of those throwaway lines. It's just one of those small parts that gets lost in the overall message. Shortly after Abraham was victorious in battle, when he secured the release of Lot and defeated the other kings in the region of Canaan, and as I say, secured his family, and then paying tithes, if you remember, to Melchizedek. It says this, And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, or Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I want you to remember that, because as we go through this message, this is a hard lesson. And it is important for us to remember that if we are of Abraham's seed, which in Christ Jesus we are, he is also our shield and our defender. But Abraham said, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abraham said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born of my house is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside and said, Look now towards heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. That famous passage that Paul, I think, later quotes. He says to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? And then he goes through a process of creating a blood covenant. He takes these parts of the animals and he goes through this process of creating a blood covenant between himself and Abraham. And then it says in verse 12, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And as my wife pointed out to me uh, last night, I think it was, God said, you know, don't fear. I'm, I'm with you. I'm your defender and, and your shield. And then he's in dread. <laughs> and it says this. Behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. And he said to Abram, know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs and will serve them, and will afflict them 400 years. Okay, 
So you're, you're giving me offspring. You're giving me this great nation. And now my children are going to be in captivity and bondage for 400 years. What, that, what did that do to Abram? Did it break his heart? Then he said to Abram, and then also a nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And it shall come to pass, when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch, but the pass between the, the offering that Abraham had laid out. And on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Your descendants I have given, to your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenzanites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. As I said, there's, you know, a lot here. We, we look at this passage and we talk about God's promises to Abram that brought about the nation of Israel and brought about the land of Israel, the country that he was going to give them. There's a prophecy here of the growth and then the captivity and then the liberation of his descendants. As I said, a sight that must have really disturbed him. It would fill us with dread, wouldn't it? If God gave us that image about our children and our children's children. And then after 400 years of captivity, this people would finally be given the land as a possession. The very land Abram was a pilgrim and a stranger in. But all of that was hanging on a single point. Did you notice what that point was? Everything depended on one specific point in this plan. In verse 16, God says that it won't be until the fourth generation before they return to the land that Abraham was currently in because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So who are the Amorites? Why does their iniquity matter? Why does it matter to God? Why does it matter to this plan that God has laid out for Abraham? And on a larger scale, why does it matter to us in this country, in this time? Why does it matter to the whole world? It seems like such a small thing. Well, it's about God's judgment. It's about God's judgment and how he does things about his justice, about his patience and mercy and grace as well. You see, the Amorites, in fact, all the people of Canaan were being judged. I don't know if they knew it. I don't know if they received prophets from God like Nineveh did. I don't know. There's no documentation in here to say that. But they were being judged, weren't they? They were being evaluated. They were being judged over a 400-plus year period. That's a lot of mercy. That's a lot of opportunity 
for a people to change their ways. And it's important for us to remember that God does not need a covenant, does not need a contract between himself and a nation in order to judge them. That's important, right? Because in our tradition, as we, as we look at the scriptures, we very much point to the covenant relationship and we see how Israel rebelled and they broke the covenant and God brought about the judgments for breaking that covenant. It's not necessary for God to judge a nation to have that covenant. He made all of us. We belong to him. He made every single one of us. Covenant or no, we are made in his image. In his image, we look like him. And when we walk around on the earth doing things that are contrary to his nature, he cannot let that stand. We are made in his image. He will not allow the corruption of that image to go unabated. He is long-suffering. He is merciful, but he has his limits. Isaiah tells us in chapter 40 and verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understand, understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like the tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes judges of the earth useless. He is the ultimate prince. He is the ultimate judge. He rules the nations. They rise and fall at his will, don't they? Or even in Job. You know, we look at Job, of course, as, as being these interactions between Job and his, his friends, or his so-called friends and his family and God. And then when we get down to it in Job chapter 40, in verse 6, yes, God is talking to Job, but he could also be talking directly to mankind, couldn't he? Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, now prepare yourself like a man. Okay, man, stand up. Prepare yourself. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you indeed annul my judgment? That's a big thing. Mankind stands up and says, no, this is right, not that. No, that's wrong, not that. Annulling or trying to annul God's judgment. Would you condemn me that you may be justified? Have you an arm like God or can you thunder with his voice like his? Then adorn yourself with majesty and splendor and array yourself with glory and beauty. Disperse the rage of your wrath. Look on anyone who is proud and humble him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked and their, in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in hidden darkness. Then I will also confess that you are your own right hand and can save you. He's mocking mankind, isn't he? If you can do all of this, but here's the irony. That's what mankind has done, isn't it? When we're, when we're reading that, and we have this, adorn yourself with majesty and splendor, what has every king in the history of the world done? Tried to do this. And what has every dictator in the history of the world done? 
tried to crush those that they did deem wicked, tried to put them in the ground, right, and bind their faces in hidden darkness. Man has tried many, many times. But God has grace. He has mercy, but he has limits. So what are those limits? What are the iniquities of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and all the others? What are they? What were they? Well, we find them in Leviticus 18. And specifically in the verses at the beginning of this chapter. Because it's important for us to remember, while Leviticus 18 and 19 are instructions to Israel, they are in the context of what the original inhabitants of Canaan were doing. In Leviticus 18 and verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the doings of the land of Egypt, where you dwelt, you shall not do. So you want to simplify this. Don't do what they did. Do not do what the Egyptians did. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you, you shall not do, nor walk in their ordinances. So this is the context of which we get instruction from God. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, I'm going to save our blushes today, but you can continue to read on in this passage, and it gets very real. Because what we have is a list of things that you, that God said to Israel, you shall not do, because the people in the land did these things. He's giving them the opposite of what the Canaanites did. These were the sins. You can read them for yourself. These were the sins that the Amorites were committing. What are they? Well, I'll simplify it. Incest, adultery, child abuse, homosexuality, and even cursing your father and mother, which it's interesting, isn't it, that that comes along with such very serious offenses, cursing your father and mother. You shall not do any of these things, God said. And then he concludes chapter 18 with this. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. For by all these, the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. That's what they were doing. They were doing that openly, publicly, not hiding it at all. Therefore, I will visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. That's just a very strong way of saying it, isn't it? The land is going to vomit out the inhabitants because of their sin. I think probably we've all experienced vomiting at some time or another. It's not fun. It's gut-wrenching, literally, isn't it? powerful imagery. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, 
either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you, for all the inhabitants and the abominations of the men of the land have done, who you were, bef were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from the people of Israel. Therefore you shall keep my ordinance, so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. Covenant or not, do you think that God looks down upon our Western world, this country, and see anything other than the iniquity of the Amorites? Let me say that again. Covenant or not, do you think that God looks down upon this Western world and on this country and sees anything other than a repeat of the iniquity of the people of Canaan? How could he not? How could he not? We regularly engage in these sins, and not just in secret, not just in private, but open for the world to see. Let me ask you, how can a just God treat us any differently? How could he treat us any differently than he did? to the Amorites. You know, he has covered this nation. He has covered the Western world, especially, you know, in Europe. If you go around Europe, it's filled with churches. Now, we may have lots of doctrinal differences with those churches, but there are some basic principles that they have been able to teach and preach to their communities for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet, here we are. How many Bibles have been printed in the English language, available to us to read, for God to say, this is my law and it's here to help you. It's here to make you good and strong that you may live. And yet, we are where we are, aren't we? How can a just God who has judged people for doing the same sins, now not judge us. Why should we be treated any differently? Don't get me wrong, God is merciful and gracious. The scripture says, therefore we are not consumed, right? God is merciful and gracious. He sends prophets, he sends missionaries, he sends saints and preachers and teachers. He sends us every opportunity every opportunity to repent of our sin and be healed, to be restored back to health and a good life, but he has his limits. The people of Canaan had at least 400 years. Do we have that? From where we are today, do we have 400 years? I'll leave that to you to decide. But I will say this, in my lifetime, the idea of same-sex marriage has gone from being a joke to being law. And that blows my mind. 
and those of you that are older than me can probably see that shift even greater. I'm not sure we have 400 years left. The second factor that I would like us to consider is tied to the first. It's related to the first. Just this past week at a Democratic presidential town hall debate, and let me just also underscore, this is a not a political statement. It's not about Democrat or Republican or any of that. It just happens to be this event. A town hall debate hosted by the Human Rights Campaign was essentially an LGBT town hall meeting. Nine Democratic presidential candidates engaged in what many news commentators are calling an anti-religious town hall. In this so-called equality town hall saw statements that you can only describe as fundamentally troubling to American civil liberties, but dangerous, dangerous to the free practice of the Christian faith. Here are some of the direct quotes from presidential candidates. When asked how she would respond to someone on the campaign trail who said that they believed in the traditional definition of marriage, Elizabeth Warren said, well, I'm going to assume that it's a guy who said that, she said. That apparently elicited laughter from the audience. She continued, I'm going to say, then just marry one woman. I'm cool with that. Then, after a pause, if you can find one. Now, what do you take away from that? I took away from it that she's implying that such a man that would hold a traditional view, well, he's a bigot. He's narrow-minded. No woman would ever want to marry him. Because all women think like she does, right? Beto O'Rourke affirmed his belief that freedom of religion is a fundamental right, but it should not be used to discriminate. So it is a right, but it has limits. And apparently, he gets to decide what those limits are. When asked by the moderator if religious institutions should lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage, O'Rourke's response was, and I quote, this is verbatim what he said, there can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone, any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. And so as president, we are going to make that a priority. A priority. And we're going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. So what human right does he think that Christians are violating? If Christians teach that it's against God's law to engage in same-sex marriage, how does that hurt the human rights of Americans to say that? In what way are they hurt? And more chilling is this, that part of the statement that he says, there can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for, everyone, for anyone. His own words, he's looking to target the individual. Individual religious freedom. And it's all based on this one phrase. Any organization in America that denies the full human rights and civil rights 
of every single one of us. How does a Christian deny someone else some right? How do we do that? By having a difference of opinion? The last time I looked, I can say someone's ugly. And I'm free to do that, right? And I wasn't looking at anybody particular at the moment. <laughs> How does that make you ugly? It doesn't. So what's the heart of what they're trying to get to? Our beliefs. You cannot hold the belief you hold because it's a violation of someone's rights. Pete Buttigieg also said, the right to religious freedom ends where religion is being used as an excuse to harm other people. Again, what's the definition of harm? What's the definition of harm? The Christian church has been instrumental over the decades, over centuries, right? Instrumental in opposing things in society that were wrong. You know what the largest group of anti-slavery protesters were? Christians. And how many people did they murder or kill, beat up, throw in prison in the fight against slavery? I know of none. So what exactly are they saying? In fact, if you think about it, most Christian churches consider sinners their customers, right? We are supposed to continue the mission that Christ gave us to seek and to save those that are lost, to give them the good news, to bring them to the Savior, and he, in their life, will redeem them, restore them to that peace and to that strength in Christ. But he will turn their lives around. Why would we attack them? It's incongruent, isn't it? Because what we're not talking about, really, is the reality of what they're looking for. They want to change and enforce us to change our beliefs. I suppose there have been, at times, and there probably still are, extremist groups who claim to be Christian. But they are to Christianity as Muslim terrorists are to Islam, right? And it's amazing that we can make that differentiation in Islam, but not in Christianity. These militant groups that claim to be Christian and conduct acts of criminal nature that do hurt people are already breaking existing laws. We don't need a new law for that. In one article from the National Review, uh, see if I can get his name right, John Herschauer, he's commenting on this, this town hall meeting, and I thought it was really appropriate for us to hear this. He said, first, we as Christians were told that good sense held that we ought to allow consenting adults to do as they wished in the privacy of their own bedroom. So we may not necessarily agree with him, but he says, well, fair enough. What business is it of ours? Next came civil unions. Fine. Then marriage was redefined at the federal level on the basis of specious 
legal reasoning. Next, religious florists, bakers, and caretakers were asked to violate their conscience and dragged before the courts if they declined. And now, at long last, the public exercise of religious faith and the very belief itself, the very notion that one has the right to oppose practices that violate their private conscience is under siege. I thought he said that really well. That's a powerful point. And then we come to this. I don't know if you're aware of this. I was not quite aware of where, where this particular piece of legislation was, but there is a new Equality Act of 2019. Anybody heard about this? Now, some of us. This bill is designed to modify the 1964 Civil Rights Act, ostensibly to give greater civil rights to Americans. It will, I think, lead to the criminalization of the practice of the Christian faith. Think about that. It will lead, quite possibly, to the criminalization of the practice of the Christian faith. A faith that has been observed since the founding of this country will possibly be outlawed. Think about that. Since the founding of this country, Christian faith, and I'm, of course I'm speaking broadly, and how many years is that? Interestingly enough, it's about 400 years. This bill has already passed the House of Representatives. If it became law, it would amend the 1964 Act to expand the protected classes to include sexual orientation and gender identity. This change has very wide implications for Christian churches and will open them up to all kinds of lawsuits if they do not hire people for job openings that they may have in spite of their lifestyle being in opposition to those church beliefs or if they do not perform services for these newly protected classes. Religious schools will also lose tax-exempt status and could be forced to close. But those are just the initial impacts, aren't they? Our legal system, as we know, is heavily based on legal precedent. And legal precedent very rarely overturns, doesn't it? It goes from one precedent to another. And this law, once generally accepted, will lead to the restriction of religious speech as any speech in support of traditional values could be quickly deemed as hate speech. In fact, 21 prominent conservative Christian leaders, including Franklin Graham and James Dobson, are calling on congressional leaders to oppose the Equality Act because of the threats to religious liberty. And you know, it, it's easy if you're trying to be moderate in your political views or in your world views. It's easy sometimes to see some of these things as exaggerated fears, especially a bill of this type. But I don't think that's the case here. These leaders claim that the Equality Act would expressly do away with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act's applications to its provisions thereby precluding any religious freedom claims with which the clergy may bring. 
They also claim, under such restrictions, the pathway for the gospel would be slowly closed off. And I think they're right. It's entirely possible that the message that I'm giving you today, in a few years, could land me in prison. I think that's where we're going. In addition to all of this, organizations such as the Southern Poverty Law Center are also now classifying normal, run-of-the-mill Christian churches, good old Sunday Christian churches, as hate groups. They actually have a hate group map. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. It's an interactive map. You can click on your state and find the hate groups. And there are hate groups in there, of course. There are hate groups in there that we would agree with, uh, their, de their definition of being hate groups. But it puts regular Christian churches that have publicly opposed homosexuality or same-sex marriage in same categories as neo-Nazis and Aryan nation hate groups. What? Where are we now in this biblical timeline? How does all of this relate to us? Well, as we know in Matthew 24, we find the very famous passage in which Jesus makes it clear what is going to happen to the faithful at the time of the end. In verse 1 it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I will say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Was he right? Yes, it happened, as he said it would happen, right? So then let's believe what else he said. Let's look at the signs of the times and really measure where we are. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, them and said, take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. Have there been deceivers? Have there been false messiahs throughout history? But there have also been false prophets that said that Jesus was the Christ and delivered not the truth, the opposite of his truth. And then he said, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. These are just, you know, the beginnings. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be fam famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. All of these are beginnings of sorrows. And we have seen these things over and over and over again. Then, he says, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Lawlessness. Iniquity. The iniquity, perhaps, of the Amorites. The love of many will grow cold, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. 
And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. More than any other time in the past, brethren, I can see a time when open and legal persecution of Christians can really take place. Do you remember 20 or 30 years ago, we would theorize, what's that persecution going to look like? Right? I can remember hearing sermons and, and talking with brethren in the church, and we were honestly saying, well, maybe it could be because we keep the Sabbath. Anybody remember that? Nobody cares if you keep the Sabbath. Do they? Sunday churches have Sabbath services, right? Saturday afternoon, evening. Oh, you keep the holy days? That's neat. I like that. Nobody cares if we keep the holy day. And yet, we used to think that maybe it was about that. And maybe it could be. But when we look at the signs of the times, what is the real threat to our free practice of our faith? It's not the Sabbath and the holy days. Not right now. It's these kinds of laws that challenge the law of God to challenge what we believe is good and fruitful and helpful for mankind. Do they care if you teach your children that they are who God created them to be? That if they are a boy or a girl, that they are created by God to be just that? Do they care about that? Yeah, they do. They want them to experience other ways of living, other identities. Do they care if you stand up for the moral principles that God gave Israel, that God gave us? Yes, they do. We've just heard from some leaders, some political leaders of the country. They care about how we live our lives and how we believe men should live their lives. Brethren, I have really struggled over this message. You can ask my wife. You know, she was kind enough to pray on me this morning. I do not like being a Jeremiah. I would rather leave that to Jeremiah. <laughs> and I'm not a prophet. But as someone once said, I can read the prophets, right, as we all can. And this is important for us to pay attention to, to remember, to look and see what the times are and what is happening around us. A few months ago, I, I gave probably a similar message in Tulsa, and it's available on the website if you, if you care to listen for it. So there was a, a commission set up by the UK government, oddly enough, an actual <laughs> Western government set up a commission to investigate Christian persecution around the world and to understand, well, what is really going on and then to what levels. And in this commission, their final report, it's called the uh, Bishop Turo's Independent Review for the Foreign Secretary of FCO, which is the Foreign Commonwealth Office, Support for Persecuted Christians. It's British, so it has a very long name. 
in their official report, they found that Christianity is the most persecuted faith by far around the world. It exceeds persecution of other faiths in order of magnitude. If you read this report, it will blow your mind. In a number of places in the world, it is in danger of be becoming completely exterminated. In parts of the world that have been Christian parts of the world, it is being exterminated. In fact, the level of persecution, arrests, assaults, and murders is at an all-time high. And now, as the report has said, has risen to the level of genocide. And how much do you hear about it in media? There is a genocide taking place in the world against Christians. And you hear nothing about it. Not a thing. And the only criticism I had of this commission, because they're really good work, but they, by default, excluded the Western world. Because the West doesn't persecute Christians. Not yet. Not yet. But they're about to. So what is our response to all of this? What should we do? Do we surrender? Do we surrender? Anybody want to surrender? No. Do we compromise on our beliefs? No. Do we change our doctrines? Do we keep quiet and not speak out against these things? No. Maybe we should go to war. Maybe we should do as the British did in World War II. When everybody said, just make a deal, guys. It's lost. Europe is lost. Let the dictators have it. Give up. They said, no. We will not surrender. So maybe we should fight. But not physical fight, because we know, don't we, what Paul has told us. That our warfare is not physical. It's spiritual. We fight the forces of darkness that are corrupting the minds of our fellow human beings and our future, our future brethren in the kingdom of God. That we put on this spiritual armor and preach Christ Jesus and him crucified.